the Rails is a documentary about to show at the Dog Edge Festival. It features young men taking ridiculous risks, jumping off buildings, climbing up narrow bridges, riding on top of fast-moving trains. But as Simon Morris discovers, the film was also often in danger of not making it. Go, 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 go. My life is a movie. I said to him, what you're doing to yourself is like self-harm. I got on camera, I? I was always attracted to, like, terror, but I was really trying to find friends. Yeah! The film industry has been drastically upset by COVID over the past two years. The big blockbusters get the big publicity, unsurprisingly. The studios have a lot at stake, but they also have a lot of other income streams. The small films are often worst hit, with productions closed down for months, no income, and often their crews scattered around the world. Taking a documentary called Off the Rails, which is about to screen as part of the Dock Edge Festival. Filmed mostly around London, post-production eventually took place in Amsterdam and Glasgow, while director Peter Day couldn't have been further away. He was in Auckland, New Zealand with his family. Peter Day, welcome to the show. Kia Simon. How are you going? In fact, Off the Rails got its premiere in Greece. Did you get there yourself? I did, uh, but it was touch and go because, um, as you know, we weren't allowed to come back as New Zealanders. It was a lottery to get back, and I knew I wouldn't get in that way. But I anticipated that things would thaw, so I sneakily uh, booked a ticket in anticipation. I was confronting the possibility of not being able to go to my own premiere, which I was struggling with. I can imagine. I mean, how, how far along was the film before it got interrupted by all the lockdowns? I would say two-thirds. We'd done the principal photography in 2019, and then the lockdowns happened, as you know, in March of 2020. We had to do pick-up interviews and things, which I had to do via um, live streaming. Off the Rails is about a lot of things. It's about people failed by the education system. It's about the rise of social influences and making a career out of YouTube hits. But most of all, it's about two young men, Ricky Brewer and Aidan Knox. I mean, when I say young men, they're still in their teens, aren't they? Or they were when you started shooting. Yeah, I would say that 21 now. When I first met them, they were 17. And they were typical dropouts, basically, weren't they? They had absolutely nothing going for them so they decided to go an interesting way i think what in british parlance they're called neets not in education employment or training Mm. when they leave school they couldn't be doing with school it just didn't work for them they got into parkour as you see in the film parkour becomes a kind of liberating mechanism for them and it liberates their most of all their creativity Now, all I know about parkour is that it featured once in a James Bond thing. You're leaping over the cityscape, aren't you? You're going from one high building to another high building and barely touching the ground. They start small and they just jump little bits, curbs and and little retaining walls. As they build up their confidence, their strength, they start including kind of gymnastics moves, for want of a better word. It's most akin to a skate park and the camaraderie and the peer group approval is like skating, where you mm. do the manoeuvre over and over and over and over again until you nail it. And then once they get confident and they manage their bodies through space, they start going what's called roofing, and they go on rooftops. And all the time, Simon, 
they're recording themselves because these guys are Generation Z and they have the devices to do so. They started editing their films and we're talking 12, 13 years old and sticking them on YouTube. They've lived their lives on YouTube. They're the first generation to do that. I personally found it remarkable, having been told that they weren't going to amount to much, they've defied that and become absolute experts, technically speaking, in terms of crafting a little story and putting it on YouTube. The fact that they have the YouTube feedback suddenly starts raising the game, basically. I mean, they started doing, I was going to say daring, but also suicidal stunts. Yeah, yeah. Once they realised that they were getting likes, so you have your first dopamine hit, which is to do the adrenaline-charged jump or, or climb, and then you load it up onto an internet, drop it, and get a second hit when all these approvals, all these viewers... All these clicks. That's quite addictive. And should you read the comments that people leave? I mean, nine times out of ten, they're very affirming. Going from a place where nobody said anything complimentary about them in terms of their abilities, talking about school, and suddenly you've got all these guys out in social media looking up to you and, and telling you that you've inspired them. That's quite a um, seductive thing. And then the numbers are starting to move into the millions at that stage. Yeah, yeah, 20, 26 million. You know, when you walk down the street with them, people recognise them, ask for the autograph. Admittedly, these people are under 25. It's still, in a certain way, like being in a pop band. A pop band, except that their thing is not hit records. Their, their thing is YouTube hits, seeing them doing these incredibly dangerous things on trains. It's remarkable. And the other thing they do is they sort of recast the cityscape to their own kind of movie, you know. They've uh, been told they're never going to own anything. The bank is never going to lend them money. So hmm. what do they do? They climb on top of the bank. <laughs> and they use the bank as a backdrop to their own... They call them madnesses. I have to ask how you got involved in it, Peter. I mean, you clearly found out about them when they were much younger. The BBC had asked me to do a film about parkour and... I came upon these guys because they were doing parkour, but they'd also ventured into what's called urban exploration. And that's really what we're talking about in terms of cranes and bridges and ultimately trains. And they're really anxious to make a distinction between the two disciplines, if you like. And I said to the BBC when, when I showed them the train surfing stuff, they went, oh, that's really dangerous and, and we should do sort of like public health. I said, no way these guys are going to get involved in they know it's dangerous. Don't need the BBC to tell them that riding on a train is dangerous. But what's interesting about these guys is one of their friends died in an act of misadventure on a train in Paris immediately after Ricky had done his stunt. So I, I had made the parkour film for the BBC, but I wanted to continue making the film about these two boys and mm. the impact of that death, given that they'd left school, as we just discussed, without any qualifications i wanted to see how they got on the police are on their trail all the time and from their point of view you could say that they were butch cassidy and the sundance kid being chased by law and order but from a parent's point of view you're saying these these police are trying to stop them from killing themselves yeah and it gets a bit complicated because just as i said they, they they're great little storytellers in a certain way, Simon, you hit it on the head. It's the same story over and over again. Try to bag the mad spectacle and actually taunt security and the police and then evade, evade arrest. 
And of course, they can literally climb up walls, so it's quite hard to chase them. Right. And, and as well, they've got a cohort, because often their stunts were live streamed. So on occasion, when they were getting into trouble with the police, the cavalry would come over the hill in the form of their fans <laughs> and, and kind of rescue them. Which again, uh, as a filmmaker, I just thought it was kind of mad. The kind of subversive acts against, I'm going to call it the system. It's kind of futile, but it's inc incredibly creative. I was in awe of it. I still am in awe of them, actually. I have to ask, how much of the film is your uh, stuff, Peter, and how much of it is the stuff that they shot themselves? Because they have a number of their own camera people shooting the stunts, don't they? Oh, yeah. This is what I mean. The, the mini production companies, when they decide to do a madness or a stunt or a parkour jam... Everybody's obviously got mobile phones, mm. but they've got some pretty serious kit. And as you know, you can buy a DSLR camera with 4K imaging. So that's pretty high quality stuff. And they produce their material, work out all the different cameras, where everyone's going to be, and they roll it like that. Once I realized that they had this really great competence, I enlisted them to give me the materials. I needed the material in a certain different way because I needed it to tell the story, just an additional kind of elements to it. So I, once I told them what I needed, they would shoot scenes for me. And it just also got me around the, the, the ethics stroke legality of what I was doing because technically speaking, I can't trespass or we can't because I, I, I was with my colleagues. So we, would, we wouldn't trespass, but they would. It means also that you don't have, the, have to, the risk of actually getting to the top of these incredibly tall, thin chimneys and looking out over the city. Oh, you don't want to be in a gondola with me. I'm all <laughs> over the place. No, I couldn't do that. We were talking at the start of this, Peter, about the fact that you got sidetracked by COVID, like everybody, of course. But it meant, um, in some cases, that it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. You had a lot more time to do post-production. I know that Peter Jackson, for example, when he made his Beatles film, said that the best thing about it was that he was locked in the house and could do nothing except get it right. Did you find that you had more time to edit when it came to making this film? Simon, I'm really liking being in the same frame as um, the Beatles film with Peter Jackson. I'm, I'm going to go with Peter. Yep. When COVID happened and Rob, the editor, was in Amsterdam, he wasn't allowed out of the house. And we, we got locked down here for six or seven. I, I just said, look, we've got all this material. Let's go for it. We can't do anything else. That worked out really well for us, as did working with Doc Edge. They saw an initial rough cut and they put it into their rough cut market. And that attracted a lot of interest, oh, wow. um, which was great, you know, and... I think everybody must have COVID irony stories, and this was an ironic outcome. I would work through the day and then hand over to Rob in the afternoon, and he would work through the night, and then in the morning I would look at what he's done and continue the cycle. And you can, it's amazing what you can do with technology. I have to say, it's an incredible-looking film. I mean, aside from all the crazy stunts that are very much the adrenaline part of the film, I love the fact that it's got all these sort of waves of graphics and all the social media comments just sailing past them as they're doing it. I thought that was wonderful. When we decided to do that, I wanted to sort of make graphic the immersion, this idea that these boys and women, they live in a world where all this information is flowing around them. I mean, they just pick it up on their phones. So it's not like when I walk down the street, <laughs> I just walk down the street, there's not 100,000 people writing to me as I do it. And um, 
That was what I was trying to captivate, this idea that they're living in the, in the real, but they're also thinking about all these people liking them. At the end of it all, Peter, I mean, there's a famous line from the Seinfeld show where they say, no hugging, no learning. But there was a little bit of hugging and there was a tiny bit of learning at the end, which surprised me a bit. Ricky particularly goes on a big narrative arc and the COVID made him extremely introspective. Was, was What we tried to establish in the context of the film was Ricky never talks about his emotions or confronts them. He just expresses himself through madnesses, which his mum calls an act of self-harm. Mm. And at the end of the film, he goes through what he calls a spiritual transformation where he, I would say, regrets or he re-examines the motivations for why he did what he did. It's, you know, it's not like in the movie, and it is a movie, but it's not like in the movies where you have a really massive change. But there's no doubt about it, Ricky and Aiden have changed and, and that's part of maturation, isn't it? I think the best thing about it also, Peter, is the fact that it absolutely does capture that generation. It just, you know, suddenly you're seeing life through those eyes. I thought it was wonderful. Simon, I really appreciate that. Uh, thanks, because, you know, you work really hard, and, and my colleague, colleagues, Rishi and Rob and Grant, we all, you know, you work really hard to, to try and achieve things, and getting to know these guys, is not, it's not easy. They basically wouldn't talk to me for months. When I approached them, and you know, normally when you say, "Hey, the BBC," <laughs> they were like, "If the BBC, we we make our own films. We've got our own audience. We don't need mainstream media." You know, I've I've dealt with difficult people, but this was the biggest rebuff, and I had to. It took me a year before Ricky trusted me, and you know, trust in these films. You can't make these films without the trust. You know, I'm not I'm not 18. It's been a long time since I was 18. But I like to think that there's an 18-year-old kid in everyone. I tried to make it feel like it did for me when I was young. And, and it's, it's exciting and it's confusing. and All sorts of things can happen. Best not to think too hard. I love the idea that after all these generations who are so used to being given stuff. We don't tell our own stories. We buy stories. We go and get a DVD. We go and watch something on TV. We go, we go and watch something on YouTube or whatever. And this is the generation that doesn't do that. This is the generation that does it themselves. Yeah, it's another uh, irony within the film, as you sort of look at it, that there isn't. And that's literally they didn't want to know. And Aiden all through, Aiden dropped out. This is documentary filmmakers it happens all the time people drop out Aiden dropped out so here I have this film that I've been making with him and he says no I'm not gonna I don't agree with what you're doing I want to tell my own story and, and that was a crisis I just didn't have a film he's gonna drop out he's gonna pull all his consent how did you get him so, back on this isn't the first time that's happened to me Simon but <laughs> it never feels good <laughs> it's squeaky bum time you know you're not feeling good I had to just charm him, and my colleagues did, you know, work really hard to get him back on board, and in fact showed him the film. Hmm. And I organised a screening for him in, in my office in England, and then I, within 20 minutes, he said, give me the documents, I'll sign them. <laughs> He's right behind the film, and thank, thank God, because I'd always said to him, hmm. this film could help other people, and I wanted it to be, him to be a mental health ambassador for the film. 
Director Peter Day talking with Simon Morris. Peter's documentary Off the Rails premieres in Auckland on Friday, June the 24th, the same day it opens at the prestigious Sheffield Documentary Festival in the UK.